I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay, guys, I'm I'm very excited about this podcast. Um, we just had a whirlwind of a trip. We came back to literally a post whirlwind of a province, <laughs> and uh, into our first recording since uh, since you know the the whole chaotic last week has happened. And I could not be more happy to be recording an episode with uh, with Dr. Gabor Mate, uh, a Hungarian Canadian physician and author. Um, a super physician, really. Um, uh, he has a background in family practice, uh, but also special interests in a lot of things that we have an interest in, like childhood development, tra- uh, childhood development, trauma, uh, a potential lifelong impacts on physical and mental health, including, you know, you name it, autoimmune disease, cancer, ADHD. Brian, that speaks to you. Mm-hmm. Um, addictions and a wide range of other conditions. Um, but the big reason we're here today is because uh, Gabor has written a new book. Uh, the Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Uh, we just got received a copy of it. Cannot wait to dig our teeth into it. Um, but before we go any further, Dr. Gabor Mate, thank you so much for being on our show today. We are absolutely honored to have you. Um, give yourself uh, you know, your own little introduction. Um, what, you know, who, are, who is Gabor Mate? And, uh, and where, did this, where did this book come from? Let me meditate for 30 minutes and come back to you. <laughs> who, who we, got we, time. Anyway? <laughs> we got time. <laughs> who are we anyway is always the hardest question. Um, so look, I'm 78 and um, I'm a retired physician and, um, and, and, and this is my fifth book. And my concern has always been, why do we suffer? You know, so I'm a, I was a Jewish infant under the Nazis, nearly perished along with my parents. And the question has always been so alive in my mind is, why do we make each other suffer? Why do we suffer? And what is the impact of suffering? And how can we heal? So those questions have interested me all my life, actually, long before I went into medicine. Mm. Uh, And really what I've learned is that we're all very much wounded, which is what trauma means in this society, number Mm. one, number two, until we're conscious of how we're wounded and how that shows up, we tend to act out our traumas in ways that we don't even understand. Ooh. And we tend to impose it on other people. We tend to pass it on to our children like I did. Um, and finally, that it's possible to heal from it if you just understand it. One of the things that I'm, I'm curious about is the title of the book, uh, The Myth of Normal. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, what, what is this myth and, and, and what normal are you referring to? Yeah, so... In medical practice, 
we learn certain normal conditions beyond which or outside of which life is not possible. For example, none of us could survive if our blood temperature, if, if our body temperature was too low or too high, we would die. So there's a normal range. Mm. Um, there's a certain normal blood acidity, below which or above which we cannot live, our body or the blood pressure, if it's too high, we die. If it's too low, we die. So that's a normal range, which is, in this case, the normal means it's natural and healthy. Mm. Now, in our society, there's a lot of conditions that we assume to be normal, but they're neither natural health or healthy. So that's what I mean, because pe people tend to think that what they're used to is normal. Mm -hmm. But what is normal in a society that's, like ours is neither natural nor healthy so what i'm saying is that it's a myth that mm -hmm. the way we're living is normal mm -hmm. it's it a myth that norm that the normal is natural and healthy it's neither natural nor healthy that's that's what that means gabor is is trauma normal <clears throat> well not in the sense that it's natural or healthy mm -hmm. um, <laughs> it is very much the norm in the sense that it happens all the time so that people get used to it because so used to it we don't even recognize it. Mm. I, I, can I can I ask a question kind of to in, that to that point? Oh sorry, I think uh, 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 sorry, I think we, we had another we had another delay there. Sorry, Gabor. Go, go ahead if you had a, okay. If, if you had a, so there's the American author David Foster Wallace, a wonderful writer, wrote this amazing book called Infinite Jest. You know, he's an incredible writer. But he gave um commencement speech at a college once and he tells the story of two young fish swimming along along comes an older fish and says good morning boys how's the water and the two young fish swim along for a while and the other one one turns to the other one and says what the hell is water <laughs> words, when something is so, when something is so close to us and so big Ooh. we don't even recognize it anymore mm -hmm. we just assume that's just the world it's just a part of it so, and so trauma, to answer your question, Brian, is so ubiquitous in our culture that we just assume it's normal. I mean, that was my experience. So I, uh, it's funny because we've we've done this podcast now for seven years, and we had spoken to so many people who had challenges that they faced with their mental health and all these different traumas that they had been through. And um, eventually, yeah. hearing people talk about going to therapy, I thought myself a couple of years ago it would be probably pretty healthy for me to go to therapy. But I went into that experience thinking, I don't have any specific traumas yeah. that I want to talk about. Yeah. I just kind of know that it's healthy to go to therapy, so I'll go to therapy. And then in the first session that I had with my therapist, I started talking about my past, and and she was like, wait a minute, your parents were divorced? Wait a minute, you struggled yeah. in school for these reasons? Wait a minute, you had this thing, that thing, the other thing. And she started to classify these things that yeah. I had experienced from my past as these past traumas. And it was so overwhelming for me Ooh. because I was like, fuck, these are showing up in my life in all these different ways that yeah. I had never anticipated before. And there was um, a quote that, that you had said recently that was addiction is always rooted in trauma. And I, like, I felt like that was really profound because beyond addiction too, for me, there's all these past experiences that I have and these these like negative characteristics that I sort of embody that I can now start to see how mm. they are manifesting from these past experiences. Yes. Now, the only thing I would say, Brian, is that 
when you call them negative qualities, you're not being kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. Like name one, for example. Let's talk, if you want to, let's talk about what's Give me a negative thing, okay? Yeah, and a, a fear of commitment, um, okay. specifically from okay. my parents' divorce. Okay, fear of commitment. Can you see how a child where there's tension and, and rancor in a house and then the parents split? Fear of commitment, fear of commitment is actually a normal response. It's actually there's something healthy about it. There's something adaptive about it because when you were committed as you were as a kid to the relationship you were deeply disappointed mm-hmm. hurt actually mm-hmm. and so that the fear of commitment is an adaptive response now i understand what you're saying that that fear of commitment also makes it difficult for you to form might make it difficult for you to form healthy relationships as an adult but it came along as a protective thing mm-hmm. so rather than seeing it as negative i encourage in this book the myth of normal we encourage to look at these characteristics is what we call stupid friends you know mm-hmm. so that um, <laughs> they, they're friends because they came along to protect you mm-hmm. like the fear of commitment came along to protect you the stupidity is that it doesn't learn that it's no longer needed it keeps mm-hmm. giving you the same message even though you're no longer the small child and even though you have more capabilities but but they don't come along to hurt you. They come along to help you. Mm. Um, we, you mentioned some of the uh, you mentioned some 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 conditions that we've sort of we've we've accepted as uh, as very normal in our in our society and treat them as such. What what are um, what are some of the conditions that we that we've normalized or over normalized um, in our society and and maybe therefore don't treat them with the sort of attention or mindfulness that, that maybe we should? Well, let me tell you a story and let me ask you guys what you think of it, okay? Sure. So let's imagine a four-year-old girl. Let's imagine a four-year-old young girl who's bullied by kids in the neighborhood. And she runs into the house for protection, to seek protection from her mother. And the mother says, there's no room for cards in this house. Now you get out there and deal with it. How would you get interaction with the mom? I think that I would be, um, I think that I would be, I think that I, I would be conflicted in the sense that I see value in the protection and value in the, um, in the, in the facing of the kind of opposition that the, that the child is facing. Like I see, I kind of see, I see value in, in, in taking both stances. Okay. How do you think of how do you, how do you think a four year old girl would experience that? Mm. Yeah, probably pretty probably pretty traumatically. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like she would feel yeah. unsupported by her mom, yeah. and when she goes to that mm-hmm. situation to to seek that safety, she would feel like that is no longer the place that she thought it was of this place of mm. that that was that would be safe. Yeah, yeah. No, safety is an essential child development that comes to relationships okay you tell them about the baboon if if they're for if they if the youngster was being de- uh, threatened by others you tell them about the baboon not to not to come to that child support and 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 and, and protection now the reason i bring up this anecdote is because it was told by hillary clinton when she was nominated for the presidency oh, wow. and the story was told as a way of wonderful way of building resilience the essential message that a child gets is that not there's no room for cowards because a four-year-old kid looking for support to her mother is not a coward. 
She's a four-year-old kid looking to her for support. Mm -hmm. And the message she gets is, there's no room for your vulnerability in this house. You better suck it up. You're on your own. Mm -hmm. You're on your own. That's the message the child gets. So what I heard you say, Taylor, was that you, you were conflicted about it because you saw the child's pain, but you also saw maybe value in toughening up the kid to get them ready for a tough world, you know? Um, I understand that. And this society actually rewards that kind of toughening up. So, but at what cost? You know, so if you look at somebody like Hillary, um, yeah, she became this tough politician, ambitious and driven to get power and didn't, but it came at a certain cost. Mm. And that cost was to herself in that when her husband was philandering around, she blamed herself. Mm. She said, I wasn't maybe picking up how stressed he was. I didn't take care of his needs, you know, and... And when she had pneumonia, she didn't tell anybody about it. She sucked it up until she collapsed with dehydration in the street. Mm. And when, when we're tough enough like that, we also tend to lose empathy. So that she had that famous statement that probably cost her the election when she called some of Trump's supporters deplorables, a basket of deplorables. Mm. But they were not. They might have been confused and troubled people with sort of views that were unacceptable to some people, but they were not deplorables. Mm -hmm. They were human beings trying to make sense of the world. So that that kind of toughening up, toughens up, makes us lose our own sense of our own needs, number one. And on the other hand, it makes us lose empathy for other people. Yeah. And I think that's sort of, I, I think that really speaks perfectly to the myth, to the myth and the myth that I, the myth that I at least in part subscribe to. And, um, and, and I I heard your I heard your talk with Joe Rogan um, a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. and I and something that really stood out to me I have a five month old six, uh, six month old uh, baby, mm -hmm. and you guys were talking about the uh, kind of on a similar track to what we've been discussing about you know a baby is crying and the idea that you know don't pick the don't pick the baby up when it's crying and this yeah. sort of attitude that we have around crying yeah. children and trying to you know maybe. Um, trying to to bring something up in them that that says oh you know you can figure it out as you cry you can figure it out you don't need me to console yeah. you and it really um and it really did really shift the way that i see myself as a parent and the mm. things that i think of as a parent and yeah. not that i not that i strictly kind of go to that place but i definitely have or had a, some of that in me that thought oh i like I'm teaching this child a lesson by not consoling it in the way that my heart wants to. Um, yeah, and you're, that you're, it, teaching, you're teaching them a lesson, all right. The lesson is that they don't matter, that their feelings don't matter, that they're all alone in the world. Mm -hmm. That's what you're teaching them. Now, again, can you imagine a mother cat ignoring the cries of, an, of, a, of a kitten? Mm -hmm. Can you imagine a mother dog ignoring the distress of a puppy, a mother baboon, a mother whale? You know, and... Actually, there's this false idea that we build resilience by ignoring people's needs. Actually, when the child feels, you see if the child gets the love, if she gets picked up, he must, he is going to feel, um, I matter, my needs matter. Mm -hmm. Then they'll live like that. They'll look after themselves. They'll be resilient because they'll be confident in themselves. <laughs> 
I'm sh- I'm sh- I'm so glad we're talking to Gabor right now because I was worried about you having a kid today. I, I, <laughs> I, I just like out of, out of the three of us, you having the kid first. I was like, man, this can't go well. Hey, For, no, no, no. She immediately <laughs> the, the, the moment she popped out, she softened me. You she changed, softened me. Yeah. I just want to add to add just one one thing to that. Like that for me, I hear that in my experience with my parents' divorce. Yeah. Like for me, it's setting like setting boundaries. Like I I don't view myself worthy of of you know my needs to be put in front of other people so like i'll oftentimes I've, i i really yeah. struggle with setting yeah. boundaries and i'm only now starting to realize oh that comes from yeah me feeling like i wasn't a- worth it. another example of you know one of the stupid friends that you have that you have kicking around and, a lot of stupid and, friends and i i do love that i do love that analogy of like the it's 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 just a bunch of stupid friends um and gabor i'm actually kind of curious about uh some of the stupid friends that you have kicking around um you know you're you're up in your 70s now you've you've been focusing on on trauma for such a long time in your career um yet um you know one of the things i'm taking from this is that like none of us are none of us are safe from collecting these stupid friends over our lifetime i'm curious about the stupid friends that that you have still kicking around gabor and uh in particular referencing to a story that you tell in the first chapter of the new book um about a time where you landed at an airport um, yeah. and, and, you know, your past trauma sort of, uh, sort of reared its ugly head in that moment. Well, you got to remember this was when I was young and stupid, age 71, I'm much, <laughs> old, <laughs> I'm much older and wiser now. At age Look at you now at age 78, but when I was 71, I landed home from a speaking trip from Philadelphia in Vancouver and, uh, feeling really good about myself because the speech went very well and that kind of actually bumped me up to first class if you can imagine so i was you know feeling really good i landed at the airport i got a text from my wife at the time we'd been married 45 years or 47 years or something and um the text says i haven't left home yet do you still want me to come and my mood immediately turns dark i, I go into this tense rage and when i get home i didn't even look at her i barely grunted at her i didn't look at her for 24 hours mm. until she finally said knock it off already and um what was going on here? Like, what happened was, okay, I was disappointed, but I've known for five decades that my wife is an artist. I mean, she's in the studio. She completely, she forgets everything, you know? That's what artists do. They're just in that flow of creation, you know? So, so what? Big deal. I got to take a taxi home. So what's my so upset about? And why am I talking to her? Well, the backstory is that when I was 11 months old, my mother gave me to a complete stranger in the streets of Budapest because as a Jewish infant under the Nazis, where we were living, I would have died. So she gave me to a Christian and I didn't see her for six weeks. And when I met her again, I didn't even look at her. That's a stupid friend. That's a friend that says you were so hurt when you were abandoned that you'll not open yourself up again to that mm. kind of vulnerability. Mm. So in that sense, that that it's called um withdrawal defensive withdrawal that's a friend that protects the child it says no you're not going to open your heart again like that because when your heart was open it was bruised so badly mm. you know the problem is that was the natural response of, of, of a one-year-old 70 years later it's yeah. no longer adaptive it's just yeah. a stupid friend that gives giving you the same message so anything that resembles it here's my, my wife the woman I'm relying for connection. Airport, and I'm reacting like a baby. 
Literally, I'm reacting to the baby. And the baby reaction is defensive. In the adult, it's dysfunctional. And that's what I mean by the mm. stupid fan. Mm. I, I, I'm, I'm curious, Gabor, like when I, when I hear you tell that story, um, I can't remember what I did last week, let alone like what happened to me, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. I'm curious, like how that works in the brain and how uh, an experience, traumatic experience like that can imprint on you to the point where you're still remembering it on some subconscious level, you know, well, 70 years in the future. Yeah, so Brian, what we have to do here is to make a distinction between memory and recall. Ooh. Recall is only one aspect of memory. So that you may not recall what happened, but you remember it. And by memory, I mean the emotional imprint is stamped in your nervous system and in your brain. I, I can't recall my mother giving me to a stranger because at one year of age, there's no recall memory yet. The part mm -hmm. of the brain that recalls isn't even developed yet. So I can't recall that happening. But the emotional pain, the sense of abandonment, and the defensive re reaction to that, that's stamped in my nervous system. That's called um, explicit memory. Explicit memory is when you can, re you can recall, you can call back what you had for breakfast, you can recall a conversation you had with somebody last night. Implicit memory is when there's no conscious recall, but the memory is in the body and in the nervous system. So what I'm saying to you is, there's a lot that you remember that you don't recall. And mm -hmm. for example, you know, every time you're upset, pretty much every time you're really upset with somebody, it's not about the present, it's about the past. You're remembering something, but you're not recalling it. And so in that sense, trauma has been called the tyranny of the past, where the past is showing up and, you, and it's governing your present. So I don't know. I don't know when was the last time you've upset with somebody, maybe half an hour with these two guys in the room with you. I don't know, but <laughs> but the but the emotional the emotional upset, the the pain and the hurt and the anger have very little to do with the present moment. It has to do with mm. the memory of something happening mm. to you a long time before. And you and talk this, by the way, that's what makes relationships so difficult. Yeah. Because yeah. we always think that the other person is doing something for us. Right. No, they're not. And just triggering some old memory. Yeah. Uh, Sorry to interrupt, Tyler. No, 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 that's okay. I just wanted to say that that it's it's you know you we mentioned right at the you mentioned right at the beginning of the conversation that like that getting that um that sort of resolving these things that we the, these the things that we deal with the things that become dysfunctional that were once um that were once defensive but become dysfunctional as we as we age um yeah. is sort of recognizing. What are the things, what are the traumas that we can't necessarily recall, but our body and our minds remember on some level? Um, not an easy task, I think, for sure. And, and I'm sure there's different ways to go about it. But how, how, does one, how does one seek to uncover the roots that underlie the, the traumas that are, that, that are causing dysfunction, that end up causing dysfunction in, in our lives? Yeah. Well, with a bit of help, it's not that difficult because the, the, the present reactions parallel or parallel or remember um, the original injury. So, for example, Taylor, if I may say this, and I don't know anything about your childhood, okay? Mm. But you told me something about it already, whether you knew it or not, like in my view, and at least. So, is it okay if I try to go there for a moment? Absolutely, go there. Okay. You said you have this young child mm -hmm. and you weren't quite sure whether to pick them up or not. That mm -hmm. tells me what happened to you as an infant. 
because had you been picked up and held when you needed to be consistently, there'd be no such doubt in your mind. Mm. You know, it's so funny. It shows up in our parenting. It shows up in relationships, yeah. you know, like, like in the case of Brian and the difficulty of, 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 of um, trusting relationships, which I'm sure you've experienced in multiple relationships as an adult, that's a memory of the trauma. That mm. lack of trust is a memory of trauma. Because you know why? Otherwise, you trust yourself. You would just say, I've got my gut feelings. I'll know when a relationship is right and when it isn't. I don't have to be mistrustful of the other person because I can trust myself. Mm-hmm. But 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 when trauma happens in childhood, we don't get to trust ourselves anymore. And therefore, we don't trust others. So what I'm saying, uh, Taylor, to your in response to your question is that these patterns that we enact as telling us what the memory was. Mm. I, I, one of the things that I want to just add to that is, you know, the, I find this really... First of all, I, I find it really fascinating that like Gabor, that you 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 sort of like pick that up about Taylor right there. Um and and like I hope it's okay that I bring this up, Tay. Sure. But like just a few days ago. So so this is why I want to bring this up. You know, to to your point, yeah. Brian, about talking about saying that you went to therapy and you didn't realize that you had trauma until you start like unearthing this stuff. And mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're like, oh. I have trauma in my past a lot. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm, I, I, I feel like it's gotta be, it's gotta be safe to say that there's a very, if, if there is any, which I doubt there is, if there's anyone out there in the world who has not experienced trauma, there's probably a very slim few who have. And, and, um, and for the folks who feel like they definitely haven't experienced any trauma before, it's because they don't recognize what that trauma is. And we had this conversation literally like the other day, Tay, where you were saying, um, you know, you were talking about how like you don't really feel empathy. You don't feel like like you you can you can you can you can think about being empathetic, but you don't actually like feel empathy for others unless unless there there's like um I wouldn't go that far. I I I can. It's just outside of my immediate circle it's harder it's right, harder for right. me. I can intellectually empathize but I find it too hard to emotionally empathize. Sure, exactly. And uh, yeah, yet, un, un, unless you do, you know, unless we we've taken some like MDMA mm-hmm. or something and we're hanging out, then yeah. that completely shifts and, and it changes. Yeah. And that's one of the things and I also feel like uh not to like throw you into the bus, but I feel like you would be one of the people that go, "Nah, I've never really had any trauma in my life." But I feel like there that trauma exists. It's just in ways that like you can't quite put your finger on or you can't yeah. quite really recognize. I would say that after I would say that after after listening to Gabor speak with us and, and elsewhere, I would say that I would say that it does exist. I don't know where it exists. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what right. I don't know what that is. Right. And I'm and, and just hearing that insight, yeah. it makes me go, shit, oh. I should try and figure that out yeah yeah <laughs> you know, right. i should try and wonder right. if i maybe maybe that maybe that was something because yeah. i look at my I, I would think about that when you say that gabor about you know me having that response to my child and mm. then that likely being something that i experience as well i would look at my mother and my father and i would go okay well that starts to kind of fit into place Ooh. my father probably did have that that mm. um that take towards me Ooh. you know don't pick him up but let him let him figure it out my mom probably not the same you know and and i so i probably experienced quite the quite the like contrasting um um uh, methods from from each of my parents which and then probably in part leads to why i feel conflicted about, yeah, about my confusing. my my daughter 
Well, the in the first chapter of the myth of normal, we talk about what trauma is, and trauma isn't necessarily terrible things happening to you. Mm. Trauma is a wound that you sustain. And you can wound kids by two ways. You can wound them by doing bad things to them, which happens to a lot of kids. They get hit. Um, like spanking is very traumatic for kids, according to all the studies. Mm-hmm. But a lot I of parents saying. think it's okay to spank their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, and and kids say, well, this is normal. Everybody, you know, it's not. There's nothing healthy or natural about it. The kids should not be hit by adults. You know, but it doesn't have to be even that. Trauma could. Trauma is not what happens to us. Trauma is the wound that we sustain. Mm. And you can wound kids not mm. just by doing bad things to them, but by not meeting their needs. Mm. So I mean, and again, that happened to you with, uh, with your Taylor, mother. You, uh, Taylor, if you're willing to be uh, my guinea pig again, I can yeah. ask you another question. Yeah, shrink sure. Taylor, shrink yeah. Taylor, shrink Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, or, or, or all three of you, you know? <laughs> no, but Taylor is the one that's least convinced about trauma. You, know, you, can, right? <laughs> you, can, you can single me out. You can single me out. <laughs> that's why I'm picking on him, okay? So... <laughs> So, so, did you ever feel sad or or, or upset or alone? Okay, I'll just do it. Uh, Kyber, just say say that one more time. We, uh, you just cut out yeah. when you asked him. Did you ever feel sad? Yeah, I know. Did you ever feel sad or hurt as a child? Um. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You're not sure. Nothing. Not 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 like a not a you know similar to what you were saying before. Not like a recalled a recalled memory, but I think a felt memory. Okay. Nobody ever insulted you. Oh yeah, many times. How did that feel? Uh yeah, bad, horrible. Sorry. Horrible. Okay. Now remember, you just said you can't remember anything. Right. So. So that already is a sign that you were pushing things away because they hurt too much. Because on one hand, you said nothing might ever happen. On the other hand, you said it felt horrible. Can you see that contradiction right away? Yeah, I can. Because I, 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 I know that I, I can't recall a certain... What, what I meant by that is that I can't, I can't recall a specific scenario, but I can remember the feeling. I remember the That's feeling. That's all I'm talking about. Yeah, That's yeah. That's all I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, who did you, who did you talk to? Oh, probably nobody. Oh man, I okay, can't. No, this no, 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 peripherally, okay. this is just hard okay. for me. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Then. You have a child. How old is the child? Six months. If that child ever felt horrible, ever, who would you want them to speak to? Oh my, me, or or my wife. Okay. If the child felt horrible and didn't speak to your wife, to his, to their mother, or to or to their father, how would you understand that? How would you explain it? Say, how would I explain? The child not talking to you when they felt horrible. Oh, that it would break my heart. That they, that and I, I, that I they couldn't do that. it would break your heart, but how would you explain why it's happening? Like, why do you think she wouldn't be talking? Like, if she chose oh. not to talk to you oh. or Kyla, why? Uh, I suppose because in some way, I or my wife or the world around her made her feel that that was not an option. That she was all alone. Mm. How does it feel for a young child to feel all alone? Yeah, horrible. That was your childhood. 
Man, I do not want a kid. It's it <laughs> seems way too easy to fuck this up, <laughs> Taylor. You've got so much work ahead of you, dude. No, I'm not saying. By the way, I'm not saying that that's all there is to your child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no. yeah I'm no, also sure your friends. I'm also sure your parents love you. Yeah, and they mm-hmm. played with you, and they did their best. So it's not like I'm not picturing. I'm not painting sort of a dark. Yeah, yeah, no. Picture. All I'm saying is, it's so easy to wound kids mm-hmm. without even yeah. realizing it. Yeah. So that and trauma means wounding. So yeah, there's trauma there for you. I understand, and 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 you know, my my, I had a very, um, I definitely had a very sports oriented, um, always the small kid, always the always the yeah. person with a little bit of a disadvantage. So you know, very like a very tough, yeah. very armored exterior. Um, a very yeah. defensive all the time, uh, and definitely had that from my father of 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 like, you know, very very be 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 tougher than everybody uh, sort of mentality, and and I actually have an experience where as an adult I remember when I finally stopped playing hockey, which I was pursuing. I I wanted to be a pro hockey player, and I stopped that, and my father had done so much for me like an incredible mm-hmm. amount. And he showed his, he showed his love in that, in that sort of way. Like it really came forward yeah. in the, in the, what he did for mm-hmm. me in my sports. And I, when I wanted to stop playing hockey because it wasn't, I wasn't having fun anymore. I wasn't passionate about it. I remember the, my biggest fear mm-hmm. was, was being mm-hmm. able to express to my father that I didn't want to play hockey mm-hmm. anymore because yeah. I, because I thought that I thought that he would that disappointment that he would be disappointed in me that he would think that I quit that he'd think that I didn't do enough or anything like that when in reality when I did ultimately have that conversation because I did have to have that conversation yeah it was the exact opposite it was right. it was that he wanted me to be happy that he wanted me to pursue the things that mm. I wanted to and wow. and so I think that really kind of speaks to the way in which we feel like you're speaking like like you're speaking about the way in which we feel like the things that we do impart this um yeah yeah th- this it's, positive it's, it's, quality that's what i mean by the stupid friend yeah that's mm-hmm. what i mean by the stupid friend there was still this part of you that says i got to please my father mm-hmm. i need my father's approval and in order to get my father's approval i need to do such and such that part of you was just trying to get you to feel connected to your father who loves you and who you love you know but actually it's a stupid friend because it's not necessary and mm-hmm. not even your dad needed it you know so but somewhere in your childhood, you learned that in order to be really approved of, I have to kind of perform, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, how am I supposed to find a therapist now, Gabor? Now that I've <laughs> now, now that I've now that I've well, got I'm, this little taste from you. Well, I'm, I'm afraid it's hopeless. You know? <laughs> am I supposed to, Am I supposed to go down to the minor leagues now? What yeah. am I going to do, I, I, I Gabor? Do, I do want to say. I, I just want to say to that though. Like, you could be my book. By the way, you, you could be my book. Oh, it's, it's, it's what I'm gonna be. It's what I'm gonna be doing as soon as we leave yeah. here. I I just wanted to say, like, yeah. I've I've been trying to explain the value of therapy, and you yes. guys have heard me yes. say this so many times. Yeah. And like, this is the this exact is feeling of like, like we have these little yeah. things that we don't understand, and if we can go and speak to someone, then yeah. there's a chance that yeah. we can uncover those things and just see how they show up in our yeah. lives today. Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. 
From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. So here's the question that I'm dying to know, Gabor. <clears throat> so we, we, we understand that trauma is, uh, is, you know, is, is pain um, that has been placed upon us. We understand that trauma seemingly is so widespread that, it, it, that, that there's probably not a single person out there who hasn't experienced trauma in some form. So with something yeah. that's so widespread, why on earth is it so still mis- so misunderstood? It, it, well, because first of all, it's painful to look at this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, um, people don't like, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. 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 Because I, you, you free. so people don't like pain and that's natural. You know, it's painful to consider that the people who actually loved you also really badly hurt you. That's painful. People don't want to be blaming their parents and nor should they. Because the parents did their best, given what happened to them, but we're afraid to of that pain. Number one, number two. People have a hard time taking responsibility for themselves. Yeah, and uh, like 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 in that scenario, when I arrive home at the airport, um, it's much easier for me to blame my wife, and I'm feeling so bad because you didn't than to take responsibility and say, you know what, honey this rage and this withdrawal that I'm experiencing, you didn't cause it at all. It's in me. I have to resolve it in myself. I have to take responsibility for it. So people have a hard time taking responsibility. The third reason is is the biggest one. And in this culture, as widespread and as ubiquitous as trauma is, we don't really understand it. Doctors, the average physician, never gets a single lecture on trauma. Mm. In this book, I point out how so many physical illnesses, most chronic illnesses, of mind and body have a significant traumatic component in their genesis. Mm. But the average physician never gets a single lecture on trauma. Um, I think, uh, Brian, when people talk about ADD, they kind of pointed to you. So yeah, um, the average teacher has no understanding that the kid with ADD is a very sensitive child who stress so much that the tuning out is the defense against the stress. Mm-hmm. So instead, they're punished and ridiculed, mm-hmm. or yeah. maybe considered to have a disease and given a stigma. You know, so there's a profound lack of trauma awareness in this culture. Mm-hmm. I mentioned another context that if you look at who's in the jails of this country, thirty percent of the people in jail in Canada are Indigenous people. Mm. They make up five percent of the population. 50% of the women in jail in this country are indigenous, 5% of the population. Is it a coincidence that they're also the most traumatized segment of the population? Is it a coincidence that the, the, the rate of rheumatoid arthritis amongst indigenous women is six times the rate that of anybody else? Wow. It's the strict trauma response. The inflammation in the body is a response to trauma. But there's such a lack of trauma awareness in the law in medicine, in education, and in parenting, that no wonder we don't see it. Mm. Where do uh, where do psychedelics come into the conversation around <clears throat> trauma, unearthing trauma, understanding the traumas yeah. that we've been through? What where where does that fit? 
Well, Jeremy already mentioned um, mentioned one. He mentioned MDMA, mm -hmm. and he said that he was talking to you about the empathy. And if you were MDMA, you'd have no trouble with the empathy. Mm -hmm. Do you know why? Because the MDMA um, soothes the fear center of the brain. It's our fears that keep us from having empathy. So when if when our fear relaxes, we can just be present without fear to what's in front of us. We naturally have empathy. That's our true nature. So psychedelics, they relax the brain, and particularly they they remove the membrane between the conscious and the unconscious. Some of what, so much of what we do is for unconscious reasons, but we don't know why because the the unconscious works like a puppet master behind the scenes pulling all the strings you know now when you're psychedelics and i've worked and there's a chapter on psychedelics in the book and i've worked with ayahuasca i worked with mdma i worked with mushrooms i worked with ibogaine occasionally rarely with lsd um in the right hands in the right setting in the right context with the right guidance and and support and protection you can actually experience the whole of yourself without fear mm. the, the anger the pain the hatred sometimes also the joy your sense of connection with the universe your sense of connection with other people all these things that are kind of unconsciously there but we don't get to have access to them Acc psychedelics give you an access to your deepest self that's what, that's what they do again not as a recreational thing not as a fun game but as a exercise in healing mm. in the right context mm. they're very I, powerful they can be very mm -hmm. powerful yeah i had a i had this i had this uh this thought the other day we were talking about psychedelics and i think we were talking about a study that had just come out around psilocybin or maybe lsd and 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 it sort of it it i had this thought about how whenever i am whenever i'm taking um psilocybin is usually the the most the, the most common um psychedelic yeah. um that i use i i have this experience of of the things that i can so easily subconsciously lie to myself about <laughs> in my in my everyday life are are i cannot push those yeah. away when i'm having that experience they it actually yeah. it actually is actually very similar to the kind of cathartic experience that I had when you were asking me questions, sort of like the, the, the therapy, yeah. the sort of like ther yeah. therapist, um, patient sort of setting like that. I mm -hmm. kind of felt when you were asking me those questions is actually very similar to how I feel when I have a psychedelic experience. Like I, it, I am just unable to tell that lie any further. Mm -hmm. And so I am confronted with the experience and therefore yeah. able to work with the memory mm. or the, um, or the thing that I'm trying to avoid. Mm. Well, I think you described it very well. And and what's actually coming up during the psychedelic experience is all the stuff in childhood that you couldn't allow yourself to experience because it was too painful. So you pushed it down below the subconscious. And as I said, the psychedelics can tend to remove this membrane between the conscious and the unconscious. The difference is, is that now we're there as adults. Mm. So we can go back to those experiences, not as helpless children afraid to talk to our parents, but as conscious, strong adults who are getting the support they need. So mm. we get to, in a sense, we get to rewire ourselves. I mean, that's that's kind of an ideal vision and maybe a romanticization of what psychedelics can do, 
but with the help of psychedelics and the proper support and integrate no the other the other thing that probably all of us who've done psychedelics here have experienced is that we have these beautiful insights and 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 and, and experiences and then we go back into life and yeah. it's like it never happened you know yeah. because because then they have to be integrated it's not like it's not like they open the door and the door stays open the mind will come back in again and shut the door again so yeah. it's a matter of integrating those experiences those insights uh, into our lives and that's you know that's an on, that's ongoing work yeah yeah it's, i mean we recently had a conversation about psychedelics and one of the things that came up in that conversation was that um specific, specifically psychedelics being utilized as a medicine which most yeah. certainly it has its place to do that but it's not like medicine like tylenol you know it's not like you take them you you have a pain in your head you take the tylenol the pain goes away and all of a sudden bada boom bada bing you're taken care of there's there's yeah. a bunch of work that goes into making that medicine work and that work comes you know before during and 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 long after that intention, experience the intention that mm -hmm. you have as you approach it is yeah. is really important I, I'm uh, Gabor. I'm, I'm curious about um, uh, about what what is, what is the social character? Okay, social character. All right, um, amazing story. Ants. In an, what I was saying was, in an ant colony, genetically the ants are all the same. So the queen is no different, even mm -hmm. though she's bigger, lives longer, and can lay eggs. But she's no different from the worker ants genetically. It's mm -hmm. the needs of the colony that decides that somebody should be a queen, and that that need of the colony will biologically change that creature into a queen. Wow. If you remove the queen, if you remove the queen from the ant colony, some other worker will become the queen and their body will change. Wow. And they'll be able to ovulate and live longer and be bigger. So in other words, the character is determined by the needs of the society. Now human beings are not as determined by the needs of the colony as, as ants are, but in many ways we are. So a lot of us without knowing it, what we think of as ourselves is actually the expectations of society. Wow. So one aspect of our social character is that in this capitalist culture, we think that the way for satisfaction is to buy a whole lot of goods Ooh. and, and to keep consuming, you know, to look better and to own more and, you know, all this, well, that, that doesn't meet our needs as human beings. But it needs the needs of society because this society built on conspicuous consumption needs people to buy stuff more and more all the time to keep the economy going. Okay, uh, yeah. so that's one aspect of the social character. Huh. Another aspect of the social character is what I call passivity. Now, I don't know. I don't know what you guys are interested in, but, you know, one of you mentioned hockey. So in Canada, um, um, this is a hockey country. Yeah. Now, the average Canadian male can talk to you totally intelligently with full of information about the latest roster change of the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Vancouver Canucks, but they could not two, string two sentences together about the war in Afghanistan that we just fought. Yeah. Or they, or they couldn't tell you about what's going on with the climate. Now, which is actually more important in people's actual lives? Yeah. What's going on with the climate or who the heck wins the Stanley Cup? You know, yeah. no, I'm not dismissing the fun and enjoyment and value of sports in people's lives, but it's a part of the social character is to make us passive about the really big issues. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are very passive and it's all up to the politicians, you know, mm -hmm. well, look where they're leading us, you know, 
So part of the social character is this passivity in the in the face of the important questions in our lives. You know, so when if you look at the average, I'm not critical here of people. I'm saying this is how we're programmed, is that a lot of us listen to all kinds of trivia. I mean, everybody knows which Hollywood celebrity is sleeping with which other Hollywood celebrity. So what? You know, does it really matter who's sleeping with who in Hollywood? But but, but is a lot it, of kids can, a lot of people can talk about that, but they can't talk about what really matters. Yeah. So is, is that though, is is that like is passivity though? Is that because we are afraid of having more deep and meaningful conversations or talk about the issues that really matter? Or is it is that by design by some other sort of higher power? Well, I don't think anybody consciously designed it that way. But it's not like it's a conspiracy. Right. But <laughs> the system works that way. And systems become like almost like biological entities. They have a way of keeping themselves going. So this system depends on passivity to keep itself going. Mm. Most people are quite content to mark a ballot every four years. And they, they choose either twiddle dumb or twiddle D to leave the country or to leave their province. You mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. And then four years later, if they chose twiddle D, they might get fed up with twiddle D and they choose twiddle dumb, you know, and so on. Mm -hmm. But it's passive. We're not engaged with the issues on a personal level in yeah. our community. And, and and when we talk with our friends, it's much easier to talk about who's sleeping with who or who's the latest hockey sensation mm -hmm. than is to really get to know about the issues that affect our economy and our politics and our climate and our children's lives and so yeah. on. Uh, one of the last things that I, I would love to kind of dive into with Gabor is, um, you know, over the last few years, one of the things that I've been hearing come up more <laughs> and more through, whether it's conversations on the podcast or just conversations yeah. in everyday life, is um, hearing people who do certain types of work. So let's say, um, let's say uh, you know, uh, yoga instructors or um, uh, people who are leading sort of uh, sort of like workshops or you know what have you. And, and oftentimes, I'll I'll hear of someone who like we'll use the yoga instructor example, someone who's like a, a, a trauma informed yoga instructor, um, someone yeah. who can, can teach yoga to people with this background where they are informed about trauma. They know how to teach people who might be uh, dealing with, with severe trauma. And so like giving them a safe space to work, uh, on something and, and knowing that like, you know, that if they get triggered, they're in a supported space. Um, yeah. and, and that, I feel like that's becoming a lot more, uh, a lot more commonplace. Uh, at least it feels like I've been hearing more people with this like trauma-informed background in whatever it is that they're doing, which is fantastic. Um, what I'm wondering is, you know, what are your thoughts on on how how we as a society can create more of a trauma-informed society at whole? Yeah. Well, so in in, in the first place, um, uh, we need to use the word in its proper sense. So people tend to misuse the word, you know, they'll say, you know, I, <clears throat> I went to a movie last night and I was traumatized. Mm. No, you weren't. You just felt sad. Or I had a fight with my partner and it was so traumatic. No, it wasn't. It was just painful. So uh, <laughs> I went to this meeting and it was so traumatic. No, it wasn't. It was just stressful. So not every pain, not every stress is trauma. Trauma is when we're wounded and that wound persists and affects our lives in significant ways. It's really important to make that distinction. That's why the first chapter of the 
of our book is about what trauma is and what it isn't. So that's on the one hand. So we have to use the word, first of all, in its proper sense, which means the wound that I've sustained that is constricting my life, is yeah. affecting who I am with my child, with my partner, how I relate to myself, what kind of work I choose, and so on. So that's the first aspect. Let's use the word in its proper sense. The second is, it, this would be so obvious. So again, in the book, we show how so much physical illness, whether it's chronic fatigue or autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis or multiple sclerosis. Um, there's a study in Canada that showed that men who were sexually abused in childhood had tripled the rate of heart attacks as adults. Oh, wow. And not because they smoked or drank to soothe their pain. No, regardless of that. So what if doctors were trained to understand trauma, which they're not? The average medical student does not get a single lecture, not one lecture, on how trauma underlies so much physical illness and mental illness as well. So first of all, let's train the healthcare givers. Yeah. Which is really astonishing. And this is despite, this is what's so frustrating for me sometimes, is that nobody taught me this stuff in medical school. I had to learn it by myself. Then I looked at this vast body of literature, scientific literature that shows the background of what I'm talking to you about, and the average doctor never gets that information during their education. There's a huge gap between the science and the medical practice. Mm -hmm. So when you go to a doctor with, if you're a male, or even a female, you know, with, with heart disease or rheumatoid arthritis, yes, they should give you the physical and medical treatment that you need for sure, which is often life-saving and miraculous and very beneficial. But what about also engaging you when that's done in a conversation about let's look at your life and in what ways might trauma be affecting your present life that are not healthy for you that if you dealt with you could look forward to better health now that'd be an important conversation as i said earlier like if you're in school a kid is not paying attention or, or has got poor impulse control they tend to talk out of turn or they or they tend to bully other kids or they tend to be bullied chronically what if we just didn't see these as behavior or learning problems or diseases? What if we saw that kid is, whether the bully or the victim, they're both traumatized. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kid is not paying attention. That's That was their way of surviving the stress in their environment. So what can we do to de-stress the environment? And how can we support that child in a way that will help them develop a healthier brain? In other words, what if we introduce trauma education and or trauma information into education? Yeah, I already yeah. mentioned the law. It's a scandal mm. that 50% of the women in jail in this country are indigenous. They're the most traumatized segment of the population, A, because they're women, and B, because, B, because they're indigenous. And now we punish them for their trauma by sticking them into prisons. Yeah. You know, what if we actually had a correctional system that corrected something mm. instead of just punished it? Mm. You know, so... This trauma awareness, let alone what if politicians understood it. So this trauma awareness, which is so easy to attain, the information is out there, it's been published and published and published. What if we just learned from what's already been studied and proven? This could be a very different society. Yeah. I I, I can't tell you how valuable and incredible it is to to um read this book and to learn about the work that you're doing, Gabor, because I know that in my life, just taking that step into going to therapy has yeah. greatly changed the sort of way that I, you know, 
connect with my partner, with my friends and, um, and my partner, she's also going to therapy now and mm. our fights <laughs> that we get into from time to time have this like <laughs> new sense of awareness where, you know, they still happen undoubtedly and, and we still mess up, but we're able to have <laughs> these new types of conversations mm-hmm. afterwards to, to sort of like keep our relationship healthy. And I honestly don't know, um, what it would be like without mm-hmm. having this tool to use and, and yeah. understand yeah. it. So yeah. thank you. Well, uh, again, folks, the myth of normal trauma, illness, uh, in, and a heal and healing in a toxic culture. Uh, it's available now. Um, highly recommend you go pick it up wherever you can find uh, good books. Uh, Gabor, this has been a real treat. It like d- truly an honor to be able to speak to you. Um, and on behalf of myself, the guys and all of our listeners, we thank you for taking time out of your uh, incredibly busy schedule to sit down and and chat with us today. It really means a lot. Well, actually, I, I, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to talk to you guys. By the way, I'd love to do it again sometime when we're not so pressured. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But, but, but um, if I can just boast for a moment, this book is already number one best-selling non, uh, non-fiction book in Canada. <laughs> All right. And, oh. and, and, and this Sunday, it'll be on the New York Times bestsellers list. It's one of the best-selling wow. books as well. Amazing. So, oh, yeah. Well, folks, go out and get a copy and keep that keep that book at the top of the list because this is uh, so this is important. Like the, the, this, what we just talked about today, this is what matters. And uh, and Gabor, you're doing incredible work, and and we would love nothing more than to have another opportunity to speak with you again in the future. Thank you. Thank you, guys, and take care. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.